Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. If you've been enjoying listening to us, imagine how entertaining will be when you are watching us. Now you can watch the 430 movie with Steve Melching, Darren Doctorman, Ashley Miller, and me, Mark A. Altman, every day on Electric Now. How do you get Electric Now? You download Distro TV, Stir TV, Zumo TV, and soon the Electric Now app. And You just have to pick one. You don't have to have all of them. You don't have to have all of them, but it helps. And you can watch us on the Electric Now channel. Don't miss us as we bring you the 430 movie in your house in person. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Uh, I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and my fellow co-host, Mr. Steven Scarlatta. Um, Now, we had to split our Vincenzo Natale episode into two parts because it ran so long, so there was so much fun stuff to talk about. Uh, So let's just pick up the conversation where we left off. Yeah, so to clue in the audience here... um, so I'd say kind of the the as we already alluded to, yours was set out on an island. So kind of the the biggest, I'd say, conceptual shift from the book. And I also think it makes sense because the book was very much of its time when these modern high rises were like had been popping up all over the place in the 60s um, is that in a key part of the novel is the fact that everyone is like going to their to work and coming back and like not telling the rest of the world. Like even though they mm-hmm. have no power in their building and are like sleeping in filth, it's like they'll still put on a shirt and tie and drive to work until towards the end of the book where no one's going to work anymore. Um, and yours is more about the idea of just isolating from the world entirely where the, the, the movie begins where we're seeing the high rise and uh, there's a narration about the world in tor- turmoil. Resources are scarce. Uh, the climate is in flux. And we see that Robert Lang is on a hydrofoil boat riding out to the high rise. Uh, basically for a, what I like the idea that it's a job interview, but that also means uh tenant application interview because no one leaves. If you live there, you also work there. It's like more of a biodome, like a, and it's the world's tallest mm-hmm. building, but it's it's a self-enclosed environment. And you also added the element. He is a doctor in the novel, but he's like, uh, trying to think of what it is. He's kind of like, he's, he's, a like, a therapist or he's like a researcher. He's a researcher and he's, he's, he's looking to cure multiple sclerosis. In the book or that's in yours, the script, right? No, that's my script. Yeah. In, in, in the book, just, uh, I think he teaches. Yeah, that's why I can't quite remember what area of medicine but yeah yours he's uh 
uh, he, he's recently scandalized as a key, key part of the setup. And also I think setup of the world is that he, his, his dad died of multiple sclerosis. So he's been dedicated to finding a cure and he was getting very close, but he, he kind of got shut down by government regulation, but he kept up his research, which meant that he like lost his ability to practice. So this is basically the high rise exists kind of, you know, uh, international waters laws, as it were, that they are outside of the jurisdiction of the civilized world. So this is also his last chance to continue his research. This is the only place. Uh, and so that's where we kind of begin. Um, well, actually there's another great thing in this opening, which is, um, which I love. The weird thing is, is also is that the high rise book came out the same year as David Cronenberg shivers. And you and sh- your script and Shivers does something similar, which I freaking love, which is it starts off almost with a promotional video of yeah. the building and introducing it by the floor of what's part of the building. And there's a voice. I love this opening because it immediately takes you in to a tour of the building. Was that at all influenced by Shivers at all? Or No, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I didn't think about that at all. Oh, okay. no, I just... Because this, yeah, no, I was just so in love with this opening. Because then it took me back to that movie. I was like, oh my god, this is amazing! Because you immediately introduced to this building and every aspect of it, and like this, the script is like only ninety five pages, and it's it's so tight. And it's from the opening with this introduction, and as Josh explained, but Lang, man, you're just off and running. It's like it it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's just really tight. And, and by the way, it was, I was very excited when I saw how short it was. <laughs> okay, what's that? I was just saying I was very excited when I saw how short it was. Because on the podcast, we're a lot of times dealing with, you know, scripts that never made it past the first draft. So sometimes they'll be like 140 pages long. So, um, oh, another detail yeah. I forgot is that in this, you give the building a name. It's called Elysium. Um, right, which dates it because... That would have been before the movie. Yeah, before that. I was remember shortly after I, we finished that, the the movie came out, and um, I was like, "Oh, well, I guess we're going to change our name." Yeah, and this is also dealing with the idea that the rest of the world kind of sucks at this point. As you said, it's like near future, and the world's kind of falling apart. So it's, everyone, it's, it's, it's right now. It's right now. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was yes, it was near future uh, eight years ago, and now it, the future is caught up to the script. And then I think you guys do a good job too. You also kind of alluded to it already. Um, but in Ballard's book, uh, it's like, especially if you're like us filmmakers, your brain wants to think he's writing it like a movie. So there's these mysterious things that happen in the book that are, he's using it as just an example of the world disintegrating. But like, I keep thinking like, oh, how is this going to come back? But it doesn't. Um, So you, in some ways you kind of take that lead and carry it through. Cause in yours, like you said, Charlotte, the character, he's sort of having a romance, Lang is having a romance with uh, works directly for Royal and you have it where no one's seen Royal in like, since the buildings open and she's the only one who's allowed to interact with him. Cause he's kind of this Howard Hughesian hermit living up on Mm -hmm. the top floor. Um, and so there's kind of this a sense of like mystery that you guys give of like weird things where he'll hear. I think early on he hears like a distant scream. It isn't sure what it is. 
Um, and oh, a muffled cry. Is that what um, but then you do you do keep using a lot of the kind of key imagery to uh, a, a key point of the book. And in your adaptation is when the power goes out and when the lights come back on, there's a dead dog in the swimming pool uh, and no one knows who did it or what happened even though Lang notes that that dog should have been able to swim on its own for hours, which is the, the, the disturbing implication that somebody drowned it on purpose. Um, and also the idea that the upper floors are just kind of having these endless parties, which you also use the thing I love from the book that's kind of introduced uh, by a bottle of champagne, just like exploding on his balcony tile. And he's not really sure where it came from. Um, and yeah, I'm trying to remember. It's hard. It's always kind of hard to say, like, because you use a lot of the characters. Is the character Holly? You have that masseuse. I think that was original to your screenplay. I couldn't remember if that was a character from the book. I, I don't remember. even know if you I, remember. I, I don't even remember. I imagine that it is. Yeah, yeah. I wanted somebody who was sort of in love with the building, like somebody who had this sort of developed this weird obsessive love affair with the building itself. Which is why I was going to bring why I bring her up is there's a scene where he earlier in the movie, uh, very early on, he like sees her walking down a hall and goes to follow her. But when he turns around the corner, she's just like gone and you're not sure what. So then the next time he sees her, he does like a better job of following her and realizes that she's like basically gone behind the walls. And there's like a whole little world in there, which she, she describes the character Holly, uh, there are places that no one knows about unmarked rooms, stairs that go nowhere, windows that look at concrete walls. This floor isn't supposed to exist, which gave me kind of a uh, Winchester mansion image in my mind. Yeah. Um, oh, I was thinking of that. Exactly. I was going to ask if that was kind of part of the, the inspiration. Yeah. I mean, I really, you know, one of the things that of course drew me to this was just the architecture of the building itself. And, you know, the, the building is a character, one of the major characters in the story. And um, the idea of being able to design that building and create it, which of course made this whole thing too expensive to produce. But um, but I had, yeah, I had Carol Spear was going to be my production designer. Uh, if you know her, she did all David Cronenberg's movies yeah. and many other things. And, uh, and I had Rem Koolhouse uh, was going to design the building, like one of the world's great architects. Oh, wow. Um, so it was really, it was going to be a wonderful exploration, not just in terms of making the movie, but in terms of designing this place. And I love the idea that on one hand, it's glorious and beautiful and, you know, just this extraordinary feat of architecture. On the other hand, it's, com it's just completely dysfunctional yeah. and it has all the, like, grotesque imperfections. Well, one of the things I love about it was that you explained it has like electronic wallpaper, you know, and so throughout, you know, so you can like have like a touch screen and pick whatever background you want. And then I guess as the building starts, as chaos unfolds, it yeah. starts flickering and, flickering and it's like, I don't know, I kind of love, I kind of love that concept. Like, so, like it's a, it's a visceral concept. I'm, I'm reading it. I was so bummed. I couldn't see what was going to be happening around the building during all that. Oh yeah. And little like in that, the famous scene of the champagne bottle breaking on his balcony and your script, then a little robot comes oh, and he cleans it up like a Roomba basically. Right. It's, it's a little bit like the building has a nervous breakdown. There's, um, there's a great Ballard 
collection of short, short stories that are are all related called Vermilion Sands. And there's a um, there's a story about a house that has a nervous breakdown, like an electronic house. That, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it developed, it developed some of the, the neuroses of the person who lives in it. Wow. Uh, um, yeah. And then another, so uh, Lang follows Holly behind the walls and she's kind of showing him around and he finds uh, like a secret room where the upper floors have been staging like fight clubs and orgies <laughs> and stuff. And he meet Wilder is like snuck in there because he's same as the book. He's trying to make a documentary about the building. And it's kind of his whole goal is to get an interview with Royal. Um, but then another element uh, you guys that it's original to the script that I thought was interesting is while he's following Wilder, they get kicked out of the orgy when the rich people realize that they're just commoners, basically, uh, who didn't get an invitation. They find what's described ahead is a hall divided into long rows of six foot partitions, half naked men and women, women representing a variety of races and nationalities sit in front of their stalls, smoking and drinking and listening to a melange of music. Uh, Wilder describes these characters. We saying it's a temporary holding area for cheap labor. Many of these people have been here a year waiting for apartments. Uh, there's no way they'll ever get them. And the idea that these are the people who are like helping build the building with the promise that when it's done, they'll get like apartments, but who knows if they will. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that idea? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it was about, you know, that's not in the book, but it was about creating the uh, mechanism by which this whole thing is going to collapse. It was just filling in some of those details. And I mean, it, you know, it, it happens that as we're recording this, America is falling apart. So, um, well, hopefully that's not happening. But um, <laughs> I hope we're we have a better seeing, ending than high rise. I hope you have a much better. I, I suspect that you will actually, but uh, but definitely there are cracks that are surfacing within the society as we speak right now in the real world that I would never have imagined when I was writing this with Richard. Um, but it kind of shows you know how these things happen, and they and it often be, begins with the exploitation of people. You know, and there's and what we discover is there's this whole class of people that live and work and are actually responsible for constructing the high rise that are not even citizens. And it, and it, it, I think it works great with the overall metaphor because the metaphor of the building is supposed to be that there's the upper, middle and lower class. But then we find out, yeah, there's another class that's not even visible to even the what yeah. the people who thought they were the poor, unfortunate lower class. It's like, yeah, there's people living behind the walls in cubicles um yeah. it's all pretty great all the, i'm sorry to interrupt but it, it's all under the guise of we're creating a utopia this is what? you know the world's first uh green building everything all the power is renewable uh all our waste is renewable we have the highest moral aspirations and then to that end in the next scene after royal or lang finds out about these uh kind of laborers living behind the walls he confronts charlotte about it who explains it she explains a way that like don't listen to wilder he's like a crazy reactionary she shows him security cam footage showing him drown the dog in the pool uh but then she notes that when you build something beautiful there are there is always someone who wants to destroy it and that kind of like whole idea of these these rich people of like 
someone's trying to fuck with my perfect world. Why can't they just leave it alone? Um, and then so kind of the whole middle of the movie is like Lang bouncing between Charlotte and Wilder, basically, who keep revealing mm-hmm. further things. Wilder basically doesn't deny that he drowned the dog. He's kind of just like, sometimes you need to do something to shake the world up. Uh, and it also reveals that Royal's basically done this before. Uh, you even I wonder if this was almost kind of a nod to the novel itself, because, you note know, there was a tower block he designed back in the 70s that went seriously offline. That's right. Yeah. yeah exactly. in, a way this, in a way, this is in a way this is the sequel to High Rise. Uh, I also like that you have a thing in here. Uh, reminds me a little bit of the uh, Joe Esterhouse movie Sliver, but we revealed that Royal, oh, no. uh, <laughs> the one good part of the movie Sliver, which was based on a novel, uh, but uh, as the idea that Royal is like watching people on monitors from his, in his penthouse, like that all the, cause there's a scene where Lang and Charlotte have sex. And then we reveal that he's just like watching them on his uh, closed circuit cameras. Uh, I didn't mean to imply that your movie was going to be like sliver. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to say anything negative about sliver. <laughs> I, I do um, love I'm sorry. Go. Oh, no, go on, Steve. Well, no, no, it's just, just to take it back. I do love that touch that this is like kind of like the backstory to the novel of um, High Rise, you know, and now and this one's taking place in the future. I thought that was phenomenal when I was reading it. I was kind of blown away by that, actually, that revelation. So, like, Oh, thanks. I think that I think that might have come from Richard, by the way. <laughs> I think that was Richard's. It was a really, it, which was really smart. And it was and I and I also believe that when Richard became involved that's when we came up with this notion of uh, Royal is this mysterious figure, you know, that he's not visible in my, in my drafts, I'm pretty sure we met Royal early on. I mean, he was still somewhat mysterious, but he was a participant and, and in, in, in the Richards take on it, he's this distant figure who's, he's kind of like a Colonel Kurtz actually at the end of the river. We only hear of him. We don't see him until, you know, we reach that the end of the river. Well, I think that helps give the movie shape because I think the problem, the problem if you're trying to do a direct adaptation of the novel is that the act one feels like it has all this agency, but in movie, like it it doesn't feel this way when you're reading the book, but in movie terms, then it's kind of like it doesn't, you're just treading water for a while. And the kind of the same thing is just happening over and over again, which is more orgies and more parties and just kind of people getting dirtier. Um, but you add this mystery because there's a whole a, a sequence I liked, uh, which is uh, Lang is determined to get to the penthouse, but there's no way to get up there because the elevators are like voice activated. So he records Charlotte talking. Um, almost reminded me of uh, one of my favorite movies that no one talks about anymore, which is uh the Robert Redford movie sneakers. <laughs> if you remember that one, but where he gets, yeah. her, he gets Charlotte to say some things. And then we reveal, reveal that he was recording her talking on his phone. So then he just plays back uh, the word penthouse when he's in the elevator in her voice. So the elevator takes him up to the top floor, uh, though he ends up getting like busted and kicked out. Um, but, but the, the idea that, that he is actively trying to like figure out what's going on, and then the one thing that you then, uh, being so isolated uh, that you're yeah. able to do is the realization at some point where he's just like, well, fuck this. I want to go like I give up. I'm going to go back to the mainland and then realizes that he can't. 
uh, and he can't even get like an outside line to like call the mainland and they're kind of trapped in their little paradise here. Um, yeah, I, again, I, I mean, cause that wasn't really a question. I assume you were just adding all this again to give it this like more mainstream shape, kind of some building, uh, excitement. Yes. I think uh, that was one of the challenges actually was just structuring the breakdown of the building itself. And I mean, the societal breakdown in how, you know, what events would trigger the next stage of deterioration and tension until the whole thing completely explodes. And then it's just utter chaos. Um, that, that took a long time actually. And I, I think that's, you know, for better or worse, where I chose to make this a very difficult adaptation because it, it, I did want to impose a, a linear structure onto uh, the novel. I didn't want it to do what you very astutely pointed out is kind of flatline in the middle where it just feels like tableau after tableau after tableau of shocking images. Um, I wanted there to be, you know, a curve to it, a progression. And um, yeah, and I think it, it, it took a while to find those sort of trigger points and then to the societal trigger points and then to have them interlace with the, you know, the personal uh, love triangle story between Charlotte and Wilder and Lang. Yeah, because the the book, I mean, and the movies uh, has kind of a very literal metaphor, which is part of what's fun that it's about social climbing, trying to get higher floors up. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of how I noted that in the novel, by the time Wilder gets to the top, he's like not even speaking language. It's sort of the idea of all of his humanity having been stripped in his pursuit of social climbing. Um, but I think it's cool the way, as you noted that Lord of the Flies terms of Ralph and Jack with Wilder and Lang is that kind of about mid mid movie is when things have really fallen apart. They're all trapped in there. They both want to get up to see Royal, but for different reasons. Wilder, as I noted, like drown the dog on purpose. He's basically just like, I'm starting a riot. Like this is a revolution. So he wants to get up to to Royal to quote unquote interview him, but you know, also just kind of seems like he wants to kill him. Uh, Lang wants to get up there basically because the only way to contact the mainland is from the penthouse. And uh, Charlotte's son, Elliot is like up there. So it's kind of like, it's like they have to join forces. Uh, right. Bickering buddy cop style. Uh, of, the, of these two different uh, motivations as they they climb up, which is, and I think I asked you this before um, we actually started recording, is like, this was all before Snowpiercer, the movie, came out. Uh, and obviously that's based on a comic, which is after uh, mm. um, the novel was published. But just kind of, I guess, for readers or listeners, to I think of a novel, if you're doing a straight adaptation, it would be like if in Snowpiercer, um, Chris Evans by mid movie. It's like, you couldn't even tell how far he'd progressed and was just kind of getting drunk and like passing out in train cars. Uh, it's kind of like where the book goes because it's, it's less of a true journey. And like you said, it's kind of, it's like impressionistic. I thought that was a good way, uh, to describe it. But so you give, you get guys give a more straightforward, like, no, we're going to climb up and you're really tracking their progress in kind of an exciting way. Uh, and, Wilder's kind of like in the novel is slowly descending into a more macho feral state and just kind of doing awful things along the way. 
and eventually Lang kind of has to get away with him. What? <laughs> and loving every minute of yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, that was, you know, the goal was to kind of find the sort of more linear narrative, but at the same time retain all of the shocking elements from the book and the ideas in the book, which are just so potent and prescient, which, you know, all related to technology, ironically opening doors to our more primitive selves, selves. And uh, which is, which is the, what's going on inside Lang. Like he comes into this building with the highest of aspirations to, you know, cure this terrible disease. Um, and then gradually his interest in what his initial intentions were coming to the building erode to the point where he starts to become like Wilder. Hmm. That's, well, well, quick question. Um, did you have anybody in mind when you were writing this? Like, like, did you, did you have someone in mind for Lang and for Wilder? When I first started writing this, my dream cast was Ewan McGregor as Lang and Christian Bale as Wilder. Oh, that would have been great. Once upon a time. That was a long time ago. Did you have an idea uh, from I, Royal? I think I had, oh, you know, the usual suspects, Ian McKellen and Anthony Hopkins, people like that. Yeah. Royal is a tricky one because, you know, he is, even in the book, like, the, let's face it, like the old white guy in the safari jacket is a bit of a cliche, mm-hmm. which is probably another reason reason it's good not to spend too much time with him um you know when i saw ben wheatley's film i thought that movie was beautifully cast i loved and of course jeremy Jeremy irons Irons, yeah um so i I thought those were magnificent choices Uh, well Um, you know (laughs) those are great choices too i also like and i don't think this is from the book so i'm giving you guys credit um but because another key component uh from the book and that you keep in the movie is also just the idea of the social climbing and the kind of the idea that you can be a lower from a lower floor but you befriend somebody from a higher floor and you kind of can be like leapfrogging uh but there's a scene where a bunch of upper floor people are gonna like kill lang and charlotte intervenes to save him uh and like a woman's like he looks like he's from a lower floor and then somebody refers to the people from the lower floors as downsiders um (laughs) i just like that term really othering the the lower floor people (laughs) even though they all live in the same building but um that's right yeah. Yeah. So I think you, that was another oh sorry, go ahead. Oh, he was another Stanley, were you gonna say? No, the, oh. uh, no, the, the one of the wonderful things from the book is that you know there there are no lower class people in the high rise. Like there, you know, we don't have except for in our our version, of course, we do have the laborers, but basically everyone who lives in the high rise is a professional, you know, like yeah. a college university educated professional. So it it shows how regardless of the people involved when they are in the societal structure, the society will naturally structure itself self into a upper middle and lower class, regardless yeah. of who the people are. Um, so in, in your script, you were all really building up to finally meeting Royal again, very uh, heart of darkness of that big payoff. Uh, and Lang finally gets up there. We're finally meeting Royal um, we learned that he has MS. That was part of why he wanted Lang there to continue his research. Um, and you guys add this great Lang gives this or Royal gives this whole big monologue uh, talking about the Tower of Babel from the Bible and relating that, you know, obviously the comparisons of this being the tallest building in the world. Um, 
I guess, can you talk a little bit about those ideas and putting that into the film? Yeah, I think, I think both Richard and I were a little, I would say if we made the movie, that would have gone away. Yeah. I was, you know, when you write a script at that stage, when you're trying to finance a film, you're, it is uh, a sales document as much as anything else. So things tend to be a little bit on the nose, just so everybody that we're trying to sell this thing. And I I find, I'm sure Richard hated that stuff because it's just so on the nose. But, but having said that the underlying conceit, you know, these, these very archetypal uh, mythological notions um, that are part of the, the biblical story of Babel um, are part of high rise. And, and, and I've always, you know, in all of my films, that's been an important component like cube, even though it's a science fiction film, um, it is related to Perseus, um, Theseus and the, excuse me, Theseus and the Minotaur. Um, you know, those, uh, the notion of a maze is an archetypal thing and splice, you know, it's about these scientists creating a hybrid organism that they fall in love with. And, you know, the idea of falling in love with a mermaid or an angel or something like that is obviously deeply rooted in our collective subconscious. And and the same thing with High Rise. I think that was one of the reasons I was attracted to it was even though it is this sort of contemporary or near future world, it's um, and narrative, it's it's definitely rooted in notions that have been with us for thousands of years. And I'm I'm curious, what do you think, how much do you think you would have changed the royal ending then? Beyond, would, it, would, would you have changed anything else beyond just him giving that monologue? Yeah, I think that, I think that's very on the nose and, you know, it's so hard for me to remember even what Yeah, it's been a while, thinking. I realize. A long time ago, but I, I do remember in particular that speech bothered Richard because he just thought like it's too, you know, it's just too obvious. Um so I would I would like to think that if we had made the film, we would have pared back on that. Um, and when I re I reread the script a couple of days ago for the podcast, I hadn't looked at it in years, and um, you know I felt pretty good about it. I think from where I'm standing now, I would hope that if I had made it, I would have let it breathe a little more, and I would have, you know, it's I I find it a bit arch in places given the nature of the story. So I think. Inevitably, when you make a movie, you start casting it, and those those I tend to find that the, the those are sharp edges, you know, where things are a bit blatant and obvious get rounded off or um, you know elaborated in a way to make them more real, because you just naturally have real actors doing stuff, and it becomes a little just a little more naturalistic. That that's where I hope we would have taken the script had we actually made it. And, yeah. that, and that would be the case with the scene with Royal, you know, I just, yeah. 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 And then, I mean, it all basically wraps up the same Royal falls from the building. Uh, Wilder uh, is killed by his own wife uh, and the women and children <laughs> up there are going to eat it, roast him on a spit and eat him. Basically um, you keep the ending where, laying like a dog is following him around and it's like they're buddies. And then we just like cut to him <laughs> eating the dog uh, and he's with Charlotte <laughs> and her son, Elliot. And you kind of have this whole ending where he throws his phone into the ocean and has like a spear and is kind of like yelling out into the night. 
where it's kind of like uh whereas in the novel it ends with uh him on his balcony and because there's three high rises in the novel and the That's one right. that everyone's living in is the first one to be finished and we see that one of the other ones which over the three months the book takes place in has been people have been moving in and now they're just starting to descend where you guys and are descending to madness where you guys kind of end almost with a little bit of rebirth. The idea that it was like, it all got torn down and now they're like starting out as cavemen again, basically eating a dog over a fire and shaking spears. Yes. Which is also very Ballardian and very, but you know, the book is, is more sinister. Like it, if I remember correctly, it ends with Lang Charlotte and his sister, there is no Elliot, by the way, no little boy yeah. in the apartment. Lang is very happy there and he's he's administering drugs to his, it's kind of like implied that it's an incestuous type thing. He's administering drugs to Charlotte and his sister and just thinking, oh, it's so great to have these women here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, well, like- it's a little, you know, th- we end actually kind of on a, a up note because Lang gets a family and they're all happy together and, you know, it's quite, quite pleasant um so we're a little more conventional in that regards but um in that regard yeah it was like we were talking about earlier that in the book it's like lang is not intended to be our like real hero i mean at some point in the novel i think they've royal even notes that he views lang as like the perfect tenant that he sees living there of somebody who's just so ready to accept this um and yeah and that's kind of how it ends with it's all falling apart but he's like the happiest he's ever been in his new weird <laughs> living situation um and that's, yeah that's totally valid all the way and so what was the club like how far did you did you really only make the rounds pitching this to like studios did you get any kind of did you get far anywhere we never, t- it was never intended to go to studios. Um, okay. It was always intended to be an independently financed film through um, uh, Radio Picture Company, which is uh, Jeremy Thomas's company, and Hanway Films, which is a sales agency. Uh, so, and I think, and I had, I think it's okay I say this. I, w- I did get Clive Owen for Lang, like he was coming on board, who I adore and would have been terrific. Um, and that's as that's as far as it got. And we just couldn't, even with him, you know, we couldn't raise the money. Um, and and that this is a process that went on far too long. Like it was, it was just the slow, horrible realization that you know we just it's too expensive. Yeah, it's just too expensive. So uh, yeah, I really it, that that one hurt me. Like I, I, that's why it's nice. This is good therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really wanted to make the movie and I really love the project, obviously. And I love the people that I was working with and, you know, there was no, there was no reason internally that it couldn't exist. It was just the world at large was not prepared to risk that kind of money on a movie like that. Wow. So it was almost like 10 years you worked on this. It feels like. Yeah, it really was like a 10 year, it was about a 10 year journey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's an odd thing. Like I feel like uh, now that I'm a bit older, it was it was it was really crushing at the time. Like it, it definitely was not an easy pill to swallow. But I, for anyone out there who has had to go through this kind of thing, um, what, the takeaway, the positive takeaway from it is that I grew 
I think, as a writer tremendously, just by being exposed so directly to Ballard's writing and kind of stepping into his world, um, as well as Richard. Uh, and I think, I think my, my, I got my writing chops working on that script. Um, and, you know, aspects of it filter, it's, it's much like the Yadorowski documentary, you know, what, what he says, like aspects of that experience influenced other things that I've done and hopefully will do. So it, and, you know, I mean, it was, it was absolutely painful to see someone else make the movie, but I'm kind of glad that the film got made. Like I would rather, and made well by a good filmmaker, I would rather that happen than it just kind of languish in obscurity. I think that, you know, um, it's good that the, the movie got out there. And uh, yeah, so I, I take a very <laughs> fatalistic, but hopefully positive perspective on these things. Uh, and I will say that uh, I thought uh, Tom Hiddleston was kind of who wasn't yet famous when you guys were writing this. Uh, it's kind of a perfect Lang, just like visually. Wonderful. Um, I loved I loved that cast. I thought the and um oh my goodness I'm forgetting is it Luke Will uh, who's who's um Luke Evans Luke Evans no not Luke He's, it is Luke Evans yeah Luke Evans. I loved him I thought he was yeah. fantastic as Parker he was uh, magnificent I'm also just realizing something related to Richard Stanley Steve correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't Yodorowsky's Dune, in to some respect, responsible for uh, him getting back out there? Because isn't that how the Lost Souls doc started? That he was interviewed for Dune and was telling all these stories about it. Am I remembering that right? It was well. I, I only met when Richard Stanley's interview and Gary Kurtz's interview was the only two interviews during the process of that documentary. I wasn't present for but it was my idea to bring stanley into the into the dock because of what happened with the island of dr moreau and i did eventually get to meet richard stanley briefly and he he did mention that um um i but i don't you know it was a while ago i don't want to take anything away because <laughs> um, the island I'm not, yeah i'm not trying to say you personally are responsible for it but he did kind of mention that though it was one of the Maybe it might have been one of the seeds to be, to be planted to make that documentary, but I don't want to take anything. Oh, I love David Gregory and I love that documentary. I love David Gregory's new documentary. Go see it, please. Blood and Flesh. It's phenomenal. I love David. The Gregory. L. Adamson. I wanna, doc. So I, yeah, I want to. I'll tiptoe around that one, but he did mention that, and so I just want to make sure it was a while ago. I don't want to take anything out of wrong terms. It's just one of the great. It was like, really humbling to have Richard Stanley in Jorowski's Doom because it was like like. Like uh, Natalie, like when I saw Cube, immediately he was elevated to me. And just like with Richard Stanley, when I first saw Hardware, he was elevated to me. And then it's when I saw Richard Stanley attached to this project and think about like Natalie doing Cube, which is this isolation movie. And also your next film with Company Man, Stifle, uh, I always thought was brilliant and it's almost, and it's a sci-fi movie. And then Richard Stanley's first movie, Hardware, being in an apartment building in the future. It was like, oh my God, this is a marriage made in heaven for you two to do. It, it, that's another reason why it crushes me because it was like those, your previous film to this was like this perfect marriage. And I do hope you guys work on something together again. I don't know if that, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I'm so happy that Richard made color out of space and that it's successful and, 
you know, he's such a lovely man and so, ta- so like profoundly talented and mistreated by the industry. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's great. You know, I, it's very interesting. Making movies is uh, much like ascending a high rise (laughs) 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 hand over fist climbing. Uh, And it's a, you know, it is just a brutal journey as we all know, but there are wonderful things to be gained from it. And I've, as I get older, I become more comfortable with the path that my life has taken making movies. Like if you, everybody has a high rise experience guaranteed like every filmmaker has that experience and um and one variation or another and you have to incorporate it into your life and accept it because otherwise you'll go crazy like architects you know i spent a lot of time um researching different architects and reading about architects and they have it much worse than filmmakers Mm. you know most of their the vast majority of their projects never happen and and the ones that do are usually the least interesting ones because of course the most magnificent things that they've planned um, are impossible. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you know, like we can't all be Howard Rourke from the Fountainhead blowing up our buildings because they were slightly imperfect. I think we have to be, we have to like. That's the art of filmmaking. Is the art of compromising. Is is the art of compromise. It's finding something brilliant in the compromise and making it greater than what your original vision was intended to be. So I think, uh, yeah, like with this, I love your podcast. I And I'm endlessly fascinated by movies that never get made because of the what if of what it would be like, but also because of just the nature the mechanics of how the industry works and how one thing births another thing in an unexpected way. And sometimes the tragedy of something not happening ends up being a boon for something that does happen. So very interesting situation um, we find ourselves in <laughs> making. The- well, and as we're wrapping up though, but something else I wanted to touch on uh, some of your other projects we discussed before we started recording, uh, I thought it was an interesting opportunity to talk another, about another aspect of the industry that I think uh, people outside the industry don't hear a lot about, which is, pitching on projects. Uh, people are aware of the idea of pitching, but I think people associate that mostly with, I have an idea that I came up with like splice and I'm going to go pitch it. Um, but I, at least for like me and my writing partner, I'd say 90%, if not more of the things we're quote unquote pitching are for existing properties and sequels and remakes mm. and stuff like that. And we know that you had pitched on a predator movie and a Stephen King's it, uh, and even a watership down. Right. I guess just, that would be fun to maybe talk a little bit about that and your experiences with it. And what, if you even remember what your take were like, let's start with predator. Well, uh, well, predators, (laughs) that was right after splice. And so I think people were interested in, you know, anything that had a creature in it. Like people were, I was on the list. You were a creature guy. Three <laughs> things with creatures, and uh, and predators, which I guess famously began as a script that Robert Rodriguez had written many years before, and kind of was resurrected at Fox. Uh, um, when I was called into pitch, they basically said, "We're not using that." 
<laughs> there was no, there was nothing. There was no script. There was only the notion that this was going to take place on a predator planet or another planet. And there was kind of, I think there was a most dangerous game aspect to it with humans being hunted by predators. And that was literally all that was being presented to me. And I just had to go in and I met with Robert Rodriguez and some executives separately. And I just did a whole bunch of drawings. I just did drawings. And, and I, did you still yeah, have any of those? Then, oh. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think I posted a lot of them um, on my Twitter site, if anyone cares to look. We'll uh, have to yeah, there post are, there them. There, you, you, you did yeah, a great like, Predator castle that like was in the, the shape of a Predator skull. It was beautiful. I love your concept art for Predator. I think it's... Oh, thank you. Well, oh, thanks. Yeah, it, it, you know, it was actually a really fun project to pitch on because there was nothing... I could just let my imagination go wild. Like whatever crazy predator image was conjured into my feeble mind, I could immediately draw and then present it to them. And there wasn't, I wasn't having to adhere to anything that they were doing. So um, ultimately, I think Nimrod Antel did that, who was a great guy. I got to know quite well um, and had an interesting experience doing it. <laughs> it, was a, it was one of those Hollywood kind of projects where there was no script, Oh, and the right and the, one of the writers, Mike Finch, is a friend of mine. This is all by coincidence. He ended up writing it, but um, uh, with his writing partner. But they, there was no script, and that was in the summer. I can't remember when. Like maybe it was July or something. And it was in less than a year. The movie was. They had like booked a date to release it. <laughs> wow. So it was a crazy. I don't know. I don't know what the you know underlying logic behind that was but it was like a crazy rocket sled of a production um and maybe a bullet dodged actually uh and then it uh i i never actually ended up pitching it because when i i saw the script for it which was at warner brothers with um roy lee was producing it with his company vertigo and i quite liked it like it in fact, I really liked it. I thought the script was really good. And it is not the script that was made into the movie at all. It was the whole novel in one movie. This is years before the Andy Machete film. And um, and so, yeah, it was somehow I was given the script. And I so I immediately started working on concept art myself and my, my dear uh, artist friend, Amaro. Um, and had a, the whole thing ready. And then they said, no, we're not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> the whole project's being canceled. Uh, so I never even got in to pitch it. Uh, that's what, what that Watership was the it story. Down. Was that going to be animated in your mind? Yes. Watership, I was not pitching for that was, I had the Gabriella Martinelli, who is Jeremy's Canadian producing partner on high rise. Cause it would have been a Canadian UK co-production um, had got the rights to Watership down as a mini series. And we were going to do a miniseries for Canadian television animated. And she asked me if I wanted to do it. I was like, absolutely, because I really love that book. And she got an a, a excellent writer who, who wrote a treatment, like a detailed treatment for a two-part miniseries. And then I started doing designs and I got, you know, I felt like I wanted to do kind of a Dave McKean approach to it. If you know that artist who mm -hmm. um, is fabulous, a filmmaker in his own right and works with Neil Gaiman a lot. Um, but you're not a traditional animated movie at all. 
And, uh, and I, so I started approaching it that way and I got this fantastic fine artist, uh, Beth Kavner, at the time her name was Beth Kavner Stitcher. And she did like these beautiful, again, I think that you can find them on my Twitter site, these beautiful sculpts of Wound Ward and all of the major characters from um, the novel that were just so like anthropomorphized the rabbits in such a way that you really felt their humanity. That's like what's so great about her work. And at the same time, very much were rabbits and very lifelike. And then I did with a, a animation company, I work with Core. Uh, we did like a 60 second or maybe it was a 30 second animated trailer for the movie um, and presented that to the Canadian broadcaster who said, no, we don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just too out there for them. And so that just never happened, unfortunately. Swamp thing, I saw you, you, you on your Twitter page, you put out the first three pages of the script. Did you ever complete the script for Swamp Thing? No, I'll tell you my Swamp Thing story. So when I did Splice, which in itself is a crazy epic story of how it, it came to this place, but it was ultimately bought by Warner Brothers. So it was financed independently. Um, somehow through some crazy series of circumstances, Joel Silver saw it and who's a you know quite a well-known producer and had a shingle at Warner Brothers called Dark Castle and decided, although he had never bought a movie before um, to distribute, that he wanted Splice. So he picked up Splice, um, which is in insane because it's such a weird film. And, uh, and he said, so what would you like to do? <laughs> what do you want to do next? I got, you know, and they offered me Logan's run and like they had a bunch of things. And I, I knew that he was involved with Swamp Thing. I had heard that somewhere. So I said, Swamp Thing. I want to do Swamp Thing because I, I'm, Bernie Wrightson is one of my favorite comic book artists. The Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson incarnation of Swamp Thing was very, very important to me growing up. And then equally the Alan Moore, Steve Bissett version of Swamp Thing, I loved, I loved even more. And, and so, uh, which was what I wanted to do. I wanted to do the Alan Moore version of that story. And, uh, what Joel said was, oh, absolutely you could do Swamp Thing, but the rights are a disaster. And I'm so angry because he paid for the script to be written and so on. But only after the fact did he discover that the underlying rights and the movie rights had been split when Wes Craven made his Swamp Thing film in the early 80s. And that the warehouse that contained all of that, the contracts and all the documentation related to that had burnt down. So it was like some kind of legal quagmire. And he said, I just, you know, I can't, I don't want to figure it out. And I thought, you know what? If I write a really, really good Swamp Thing script, I bet he'll figure it out. So I started writing it just on my own. Um, and then I gave up. <laughs> was, I realized that this is really, really hard. So I, I think I have like 40 pages of a Swamp Thing script, but I, I thought, this is too speculative and I don't want to spend the time that much time on something. that's that speculative. <laughs> so that's my Swamp Thing story, but I would love, I know they did the TV series, which I really want to see. Um, and I had actually been given the script for the pilot and kind of, I don't know if it's strictly been like an offer. It sounded like it was sort of an offer for me to direct the pilot. And then I'm sorry to say, I disliked that pilot script so much that I, 
didn't want to pursue it. But then I heard it turned out really well. So um, that's something I want to see. I want to see what they did with that. What yeah, I guess that? it's going to be on the CW now. Uh, I want to watch the season it. Season they shot. Yeah, in the fall, because there's no way to shoot anything new at the moment. Um, was Constantine in your script by any chance? Uh, he was going to be. I mean, I was doing a very faithful adaptation of like the first, I can't remember how many, uh, uh, you know, uh, comics of, of the Alan Moore run. And um, yeah, I had, uh, I had John Constantine was going to show up. I didn't get quite that far. Um, but there was, you know, the Abigail, I'm trying to remember now, but there was Abigail uh, is working in a home for disturbed children and there's a whole kind of satanic um, subplot. And yeah, it, it was it, it, somebody, I, maybe, I don't know what they've done with the series. They did the whole I think what was so brilliant about the Alan Moore take on it was that you discover that Swamp Thing is not Alec Holland. He's not a man. That he was kind of organically cloned. When Alec Holland burned from this chemical and fell into a swamp, he died but this chemical kind of recreated a version of him, a humanoid swamp version of him. So Swamp Thing is not a man. And he's just, he's, he's a creature that thought he was a man. And I just, that's such a brilliant and poignant and incredible way to like rethink that character from the, the Bernie Wrightson Len Wein run. Um, yeah, I really, I really wanted to tell a story. And of course he, he becomes a kind of environmental hero, environmental superhero, which is very interesting. Uh, yeah, that was my Swamp Thing. Well, maybe I, looping I, back to High Rise really quick, because uh, I realized we kind of skipped over it. I'm trying to see if I can share my screen with you guys over Zoom to make this easier. Uh, hopefully this doesn't blow anything up. Uh, whatever. I, I want to talk about this concept art you sent us. Uh, do you have that in front of you by any chance? Since I can't quite figure out how to share my screen. Oh, right. I, I, I know it well enough that. Uh, um, well, first of all, who, who made this concept art? And for the listeners, we'll post these uh, on Instagram and Twitter uh, at oh, Never Made Film is our Twitter. But. Um, uh, yes, this is very, very well. I should contextualize. It's uh, very early, early concept art, um, and it would have evolved a great deal from what you see. Uh, but, but of course, it's beautiful work because it's done by um, Amro Achia. He did all the building stuff, mm -hmm. and Amro, I work with all the time. Um, and but he's he was one of the main designers on Splice, and um, just very interesting artist. And then uh, Dan Milligan did the other uh, drawings, which are more the uh, interior views with where you see people. And um, he's, he's one of like the great storyboard artists and uh, works on big movies all the time. Uh, but they're both primarily based here in Toronto. And uh, yeah, the, it was really early stuff. I think, you know, um, it just gives you kind of a sense of what we were trying to do. It was important to me when we did High Rise that we presented in the near future. I really wanted it to be, I felt like you can't in the present, you could have never have it take place in a normal high rise because high rises have existed for a very long time and nothing like this has ever <laughs> happened. It could be this 
extraordinary place. Like the the building itself had to be, you know, the the science fictional Bellardian equivalent of the Overlook Hotel in terms of how impactful it would be and how visually resplendent and magnificent it would be. Um, which was part of the excitement for me was to like create that. And uh, uh, so, but this was the first notional step. And then a little later on, I started talking to Rem Koolhaas about it. And he had done this design for a building, which was just like the most insane thing I've ever seen. Um, that was sort of the starting point for something that we were going to consider doing. Um, actually, I could even, I should try to dig that up too. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, the the but, two that uh, I wanted to ask specifically about um, is the character drawings. There's one of a guy who has like war paint on his face. Uh, and I was curious if that is, is that Wilder? I don't think it was anything specific. I oh, think that was, a, that's gotcha. he was just kind of getting into the vibe of it. Um, but for sure, we would have gone down that road. I mean, it would have been, you know, total disintegration into um, some kind of primitive state for all of these characters. And I loved the idea. Like I was very excited by the idea of having these very, uh, these, you know, highly designed spaces and seeing them destroyed. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, take, take, taking um, really top level design and just tearing it apart and, uh, and then kind of watching it degrade and, turn into like a, just a, a, a complete dismal you know combination of dirt and mud and shit and <laughs> <laughs> one of the inspirations for me for high rise actually was uh the jean-luc godard film weekend oh interesting oh wow which is a movie that i really love and i always felt i you know i wanted i kind of wanted to make this like the accessible version of weekend i mean weekend is a not impenetrable movie, but it's it's absolutely not a film for mainstream consumption. But there's just something so, you know, uh, correct about the way it perceives uh, modern consumer culture, and um, and it's so anarchic and subversive. And I, I, I really kind of saw this as a way to like attack consumerism and all the terrible evil things um, that our society breeds. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was part of the, that was one of the major ingredients. Interesting. I guess now wrapping things up, what can people expect from you in the near future? Uh, next thing for me, I have, um, series I'm doing, uh, at Amazon with, um, uh, uh, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy who do Westworld, um, based on, uh, William Gibson's, well, not his most recent book, but his next most recent book called The Peripheral, which is an extraordinary uh, science fiction novel um, that takes place in two times, one of them in London um, and one of them being in the rural south of the United States. And it's, um, super, yes, I feel very, very, very fortunate to be uh, working on it. It's a really, really cool project. Oh, nice. And then you were noting you did a couple episodes of The Stand, right? Yeah, I just, yeah, before the whole uh, COVID-19 thing hit. The, the <laughs> I was unfortunately uh, relevant, The Stand. The Stand could, yes, The Stand really couldn't 
be more prescient on a number of levels. And it was, yeah, the irony was not uh, 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 invisible to us as we're working on it, as we like watched the whole COVID thing unfold and we're basically making a movie about a, a virus that wiped out 90% of the world's population. Um, so I was in Las Vegas when we got shut down <clears throat> just one day from completion, but that, it, it'll be finished. There's no question. It's, it's very, um, and had a really good experience on that and, uh, invariably, you know, working on a, a lot of things, um, uh, all at once and God knows what'll happen. <laughs> I'm working on actually a, a graphic novel right now. I'm taking, uh, this opportunity to finish this. Is that something you can talk about or is that under wraps? Uh, This will be the first place I've ever spoken about it publicly, but I'll tell you it's called Tech. And I don't know if anyone's going to want to release it. I'm just doing it on my own, on my iPad, but um, drawing it and writing it. But uh, it's been very, I'll just say this for any, you know, filmmakers out there who invariably struggle uh, getting their projects going. I found it very invigorating to be able to work on something that is not a screenplay. <laughs> it is a complete, you know, the problem with scripts like High Rise, something I've worked on for 10 years is that they're always a blueprint and they're never a finished product. And, and the, the pleasure that I take in this graphic novel is that when I finish a page, it's finished. <laughs> like there's no notes to get from anybody. There's no production. There's no, raising money to finish it is just done and there's something very whether it's good or not is another thing entirely but but there's something super empowering about that and i think it's good for us filmmakers out there to allow ourselves to work on projects that are just our own and that don't require the permission of other people um, just to keep our creative minds alive and and feeling positive because the development process is really I know this is the case for everybody. Like it can really be debilitating. So um, yeah, sort of in the midst of this pandemic has actually been kind of a wonderful thing to, to work on. I'm happy to hear that because whenever you release your own storyboards and concept art, I, I love your artwork. So I'm excited for that. I got to say, I, that's what I love following you on Twitter. I love it when I see you put out your storyboards for the TV shows you just worked on or the concept art. Like I said, for Predator, I love that concept art. So I'm, I'm happy for this. I'm excited. Uh, oh, thank you, Steve. And that to, means a lot. to that end, uh, what is your Twitter handle to make it easy for people to find you? Um, I'm just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just Vincenzo Natale, yeah, I, I don't think, think there's a lot of Vincenzo Natales out there. So yeah, if you, if you look up my name, yeah, Vincenzo and then underscore Natale. All right. Yeah. Uh, I, I also encourage so people me. to follow us on Instagram at best movies, never made and Twitter at never made film. Uh, like I said, we'll be posting some of this concept art, uh, from high rise and reposting some of Vincenzo's artwork from predators and so forth. Uh, thank you so much for beaming in from Toronto to talk to us. <laughs> I'm oh, glad yeah. to hear it was therapeutic. Uh, usually oh, you have no idea. This has been so good. Uh, I, I, I normally be paying a very large sum of money to people <laughs> to do this. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. I also encourage people to download the Electric Now app, uh, which has a bunch of movies and TV shows you can watch for free. Uh, it also has video of our podcast and the other Electric Surge 
uh, podcast. If you want to look at our faces while we're talking, uh, we tried to record video of this one. I don't think it's going to work. I don't know if you even want to see our homes. That seems weird to me. But anyway, get that app. Look at our faces. Uh, thank you again, Vincenzo. Um, and I also encourage people to check out uh, the 430 movie and Inglorious Trexperts, our sister podcasts. Uh, I always thank uh, Bill Ritter, our sound guy. I'm not sure how he's going to factor into these episodes <laughs> we're recording from home. Hopefully can mix them so they don't sound awful. Uh, thank our producers, Mark Altman and Dean Devlin. Uh, as always, I am Josh Miller, and this is... Steven Scarlatta. Uh, and we will not be seeing you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.